If you uh, have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 8. The book of Acts comes on the tail end of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, you've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell about the life of Jesus and, and uh, how Jesus lived this sinless life. And then, and then they, kind of, they kind of pinnacle at the last week of Jesus' life where Jesus um, is, is basically headed to the cross. And he knows it. Uh, he's going to the cross and, and then uh, they choose to execute him um, and put him to death. And um, he's in the tomb three days, right? And three days later, he raises from the dead, um, conquering sin and death. And, and that's kind of the context of the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins with the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And then about 40 days or so, he spends uh, training his disciples, basically telling them what it means that he is resurrected from the dead, what it means for them, uh, what their mission is from this point on. Um, and, and so that's the foundation uh, for, for where we start the book of Acts. And, and, and kind of Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, there's some, a big event that happens. Anybody know what it's called? Big event in, right at the beginning of the book of Acts. There's a church that, that calls themselves by this. Pentecost. Pentecost. And, and what Pentecost actually means is it's, it's, it's the word, it's 50 days. It's kind of what that means. 50 days after the Passover. Um, so kind of, kind of roughly where we think uh, that, that Jesus was in the tomb um, was that night that Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. And then it was very shortly after that uh, that Jesus was arrested and taken to the cross. And so Jesus spent roughly 40 days um, um, with the disciples after his resurrection. So uh, if you take the, about three days or so, uh, Jesus was in the tomb. Okay, so from Passover to, um, to resurrection, three days. Uh, that takes off um, about three days off of 50, right? So uh, roughly about 47 days, right? 40 days to, um, or f 47 days to, uh, 40 days he spent with the disciples, all right? I'm trying to get my timeline right here. Okay, 40 days he spends with the disciples. So about one week after Jesus ascends, we can assume was when Pentecost happened and when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the epicenter, if you will, of this movement of Christianity. And what I want to start with this morning is Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church is not here this morning with the, how the historical events that took place in the book of Acts. Um, and I know that sounds like this big, huge statement. Um, how could you make such a big statement? Why do I make such a statement? Because the book of Acts tells the story of how a small group of people spread the greatest story ever told, the greatest message ever told, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and they spread that throughout the civilized world of their day. And the domino effect, if you will, of them sharing the gospel one door, one door, one house to another house, uh, one person to another person, one people group to another people group. The domino effect of that is eventually the gospel has made its way through history to where today there's churches all over the world because this small group of people spread that message, shared that message. 
And it was continued to be told and retold. And it's still being told and retold, isn't it? There's still people that are hearing the gospel. Why has it spread? This is a, a, a big cultural misnomer of our day, I think. A, a There's a lot of misunderstanding about this today, um, especially in our culture. Is it because, and I think this is a belief that's out there, you've probably heard something like this, is it because ignorant people, generation after generation, have not questioned its truthfulness? Is that why the gospels continue to spread? Because there's nobody with the courage, nobody with enough conviction, nobody with enough criticism inside of them to criticize the gospel and to say, is this really true? Is the gospel really true? Did this really happen? And there's some who would say, yeah, nobody's questioned it. And now, just now, people are starting to actually ask and really starting to question, oh, could a guy really raise from the dead in three days? As if we, in our great wisdom, have all of a sudden come across new wisdom and new knowledge and all of a sudden have the courage to actually question the truthfulness of the gospel. What an arrogant thing to say. But there's many in our day who would say that. Oh, we're the first ones to actually question the truthfulness of the gospel. No, no, that's not why the gospel has spread. The gospel has not spread because nobody's had the nerve to question it. In fact, throughout history, certainly throughout the book of Acts, we see that the message of Jesus Christ was constantly questioned, constantly criticized. Is it true? Even violently resisted. And yet, in spite of all of this, in spite of all the resistance all through history, guess what? The gospel keeps going forward. Michelle laughs at me every time I say this, but you can't stop it. You can't stop the gospel. It's it's moving, and you, nobody will stop it today either. There's going to be people that, there's people today in our culture that are trying to stop the gospel, right? There's people that are criticizing it, saying, no, it has no, it has no validity. It's not, it's not valid. It's silly. But the gospel will continue to move forward because it's true, and because it's powerful, and because it's of God. And that's what we see throughout the book of Acts. We see the gospel moving forward, pushing into the world through the believers, through the people who have put their faith in Christ. Highly criticized and often persecuted, the followers of Jesus would not shut up. Why? Because they had really experienced the resurrected and risen Lord in their lives. They had seen something that had happened that could only be explained by the power of God and the fulfillment of God's will. So Acts chapter 8 begins in this context, this setting of the gospel spreading and pushing into the world. And, and in fact, the, the, the very first thing we see almost here in Acts chapter 8 is, as we're looking at it is the persecution of the church and a funeral a funeral is happening right here at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 because a guy would not shut up about Jesus and they put him to death because he wouldn't shut up. So we're going to start here, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and kind of get a run at this. And then kind of we're going to zoom in onto a guy named Philip and kind of look at how he shared his faith. We're talking about sharing your faith this morning. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Saul 
approved his execution, talking about Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds in one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Would you pray with me? Let's pause and pray a moment. Father, we ask for your help this morning. Um, we ask for your help to, uh, to understand your word. And uh, Lord, we know that, that we are um, got a need uh, of a lot of help this morning as, as we uh, try to understand what this means um, in the context of, of what we're reading, um, but also understanding what it means for us in our present day. Um, Lord, help us to be able to learn from godly men and women who've gone before us on how we are supposed to be pushing the gospel into the world around us. Father, our heart is also uh, praying for our pastor this morning and this week as he's going to be doing a revival up in Kansas and, and that, God, you would just use him there, um, that you would refresh him, God, even, even in the fact that he's going to be working all week and, and ministering there all week, God, we ask that you just refresh him and um, God, just use this time in his life to, to uh, minister to him. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the believer's response? So kind of begin with a question here this morning. What is the believer's response? I think this is very interesting when persecution comes. When persecution comes uh, on the church, on the new believers there in Jerusalem, okay, this thing's just starting. This thing is just a movement that's very young still. What is the believer's response to the persecution and the violent execution of their friend Stephen? Well, they flee Jerusalem, many of them, Except for the apostles, it says. That's, I think that's pretty interesting. But the apostles stay there in Jerusalem. They continue the ministry there. But a lot of believers are pushed out of Jerusalem into the uh, surrounding cities, surrounding towns, surrounding territories. And what happens with those believers is they're pushed out into the surrounding communities. They preach the gospel. Find that really interesting, uh, because if it were me, I don't know that I would have the courage to continue doing that. I hope I would. I hope I would have that kind of courage. For me, kind of living in, in an Americanized culture where a lot of times my comfort is the king in my life, it's hard for me to imagine in a state of fear and in a state of, of fleeing for my life that my first thought would go towards 
spreading the gospel. Because oftentimes I know that when things don't go my way, my first thought is to turn inward and to become very self-focused and, and maybe to feel sorry for myself, maybe even to question God and say, God, why? God, why are you doing this? Things were going great in Jerusalem. The gospel was spreading and man, I was making some great friends and life was really good. And then why are you letting all this bad stuff happen? And it begs the question, it begs the question, why are these people reacting differently? Should we react differently than that? I think we should. But in the minds of these believers, I don't think, I don't think that life being hard, things going badly was an unexpected thing because didn't Jesus tell them didn't Jesus tell the, the disciples, hey, when you're persecuted, when things go badly, remember. Remember what happened to me when I spoke the truth? People are going to hate you. Don't be surprised when that happens. We live in a sinful and fallen world. A world that, in many cases, is opposed to the gospel is opposed to the message of Jesus Christ. And so when you experience persecution for that, it just confirms, hey, that's the world we, need, we live in. A world that needs to be saved. A world that needs to be redeemed. A world whose eyes need to be open. What a terrific example uh, for us to follow as we look at these believers uh, here at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Who's preaching the gospel here? Um, as, as, the, as the gospel is spreading, as these believers are scattered into the surrounding villages, it's interesting to note, who's, who's preaching the gospel? Is it, is it talking about the apostles that have been scattered preaching the gospel? Let's look back here. It says, Now those who are scattered went about preaching the word. And up, up here earlier, it says uh, in verse 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions. It will lead us to believe that the church is who is preaching the gospel. Not the apostles. The apostles are still in Jerusalem. Yeah, they're probably preaching the gospel there. But it would lead us to believe that it was probably workers Maybe, you know, full-time tent makers or full-time, you know, moms, full-time, you know, uh, fishermen, uh, people that were vocational workers that are being pushed out and scattered. Those are the people that are preaching the gospel. We are the church, Lincoln Avenue. We are the church in our community. Uh, every one of us has a call in our lives. And probably most of us would agree with that. Every one of us has a call in our lives to be about preaching the gospel, to be about sharing the gospel message um, together, each of us individually. What does it look like for you and me? This is kind of the big question we're going to be asking this morning to push the gospel into our world. What does it look like then if, if God has indeed called each of us individually and corporately as a church, but individually as believers in Christ to push the gospel into our world. What does that look like for us? And we're going to look closely uh, a little more here uh, at Philip, uh, a guy that's kind of talked about a little bit here at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. 
And we're going to look at his encounter with the Ethiopian uh, this morning to kind of get an idea of some, some handles that we can kind of grab onto when it comes to what it looks like to share our faith and push the gospel um, into our culture um, and into our world. And, but before I do that, I know I've got to deal with this word push because I've been using it a little bit. You've probably heard me already and it's already making some of you feel uncomfortable because automatically when you hear that word push and I'm talking about sharing our faith, you're beginning to think about pushy. And we all know somebody who, 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 who maybe we've thought of or an example that we've thought of, of, of somebody who is a pushy Christian. You know, it's the guy that, uh, you know, is out there and he's basically telling everybody around him that they need to either uh, believe in Jesus or they're going to go to hell. And uh, he's, got, he's got a bumper sticker on the back of his pickup truck and it says, turn or burn. Uh, we, we all, we, we've all got this image in our mind of That's, that, that pushy guy. Man, that guy annoys me. He gives us Christians a bad name. And, and why does that bother us so much when we, when we think about somebody who's a pushy Christian, a pushy evangelist. Um, you know, and a couple of years back, some of you probably remember this, but I guess there was a guy on the OU campus that would like, I don't I think he had signs or something, and he would like yell at, at college students as they went by and talk about how they're, man, you're so evil, and you're going to hell, you know, and, and he would just kind of do that and, and preach that kind of a message, and just pushy, just kind of annoying, um, that kind of approach to sharing the gospel really bothers us, and I think it should, okay? So don't get me wrong here this morning. I think, I think somewhat that should bother us because it kind of gives almost this car salesman approach to evangelism, don't you think? The, the whole idea of, you know, man, you've got, I've got this deal here, and, and, and you just feel manipulated, don't you? You feel like the guy is trying to manipulate you into buying what you're trying to sell, and he's trying to get something from you. You, you kind of feel like that. Uh, somebody who's pushy. The example I thought of, um, uh, of just kind of this whole pushy idea and why it bothers us so much is before Michelle and I got married, when we were engaged, uh, we were in Springfield, I think, and, and uh, we were out looking for my wedding ring, and, um, and, and so we kind of were going to some different jewelry stores and just kind of looking to see what was out there. And we went by this one in the mall, and, and there's this, you know, the big, uh, is this store, and it had vinyl signs, and it had 70% off closeout sale on these big vinyl sides, signs just hanging all over the store, and they had stuff in the windows too, I think. It was just like decked out with sale signs. And so I thought, well, for sale, okay, well, that looks like a good deal. So we walked in and started looking around, and I actually found one that I kind of liked. I thought, oh, that one's, I think that one's kind of cool. And so we started talking to the guy about, you know, what kind of deal he'd give. Well, we can give you 70% off, but I'll give you a special deal. I'll give you a special deal because you guys are looking and he's trying to be, he's kind of being nice. And, you know, we'll give you a special deal. I'll give you a little bit more off of it even. And so kind of looking, okay, well, that sounds like really a really good deal. And so I'm trying to be, you know, wise about how we spend our money. And so, so I'm, we, that was the very first store we'd looked in. Hadn't really looked at anything else yet. So I'm like, okay. I said, that's, that sounds great. Um, we haven't looked anywhere else yet. So we're going to go look at a couple other stores and then we're going to come back and uh, pr probably get this one because this seems like a terrific deal. So we start, start walking out, walking towards the door and, and he's like, hey, once, once you walk out that door, this deal is off the table off the table. 
So here comes the pressure, right? Well, boy, that seems like a good deal right now. And you know what? The more I thought about it, I got mad. Because I'm like, this guy, he is trying to play us. This guy is manipulating this situation to put the pressure on and to make us make us a purchase right now. And so I'm like, see you, buddy. And we, so we went and, and we looked at some other stores. And um, this story has a happy ending because, you know, we went down to Zales and we found the exact same ring for $200 cheaper than what he was giving us the best price. Um, but that pushiness, that manipulation, it bothers us. And, and really, that is not what the gospel should be, is it? Uh, the Apostle Paul, just so you don't think I'm just saying this because it's how I feel, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul is writing. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And, and, and Paul says, no, there should just be this truth. We're not going to be underhanded in this deal. We're not trying to be cunning or sneaky with the gospel. We're just laying out the truth in a very loving and gracious way. Now, where does the pushing come in? Okay, And, and this is what I don't want you to think we're talking about. We are not manipulative manipulative people. We are not to be manipulative as Christians, trying to play on people's emotions, trying to push people to make a decision. That is not our method of evangelism. But why am I talking about being a person that is pushing into our world? And this is what I see. The reality of pushing into the world is not this idea of, of manipulating people, but it is pushing because as the, peop as the people in Acts were sharing the gospel, guess what? They found out it was hard. It was hard to go into the world and share the gospel because they were having to cross cultural lines. And so there were already some prejudices and some barriers there. It was hard to go into another culture and share the gospel because, well, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. I'm an Ethiopian. Why are you talking to me? Jews aren't normally nice to people like me. And so they had to push and say, no, I really care about you. I know what you're saying, and, and that's wrong. That's sin. But I really care about you. God has changed something in me, and God has shown me that the gospel's for all people. And so they had to push into a world that was resistant to the gospel. And you know what? In the very same way, you know what? As we push out into our culture, there's people that, you know what, they look at Christians and maybe they have some preconceived ideas about what they've experienced in life with other people that claim to be Christ followers. And we're having to push into our world sometimes. We're having to overcome barriers in our world to share the gospel. And some of you are like me. You know what, how many of you, you know what, it's just kind of, it just, sharing the gospel just doesn't come real natural. It kind of makes me feel a little uncomfortable sometimes to kind of stick myself out there and to start asking somebody a question about where they're at spiritually, sometimes that makes me feel uncomfortable. And so I find that I have to push. I have to push over that bump a lot of times to start sharing the gospel with somebody, to have the courage. 
And, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about pushing into our world with the gospel. How does Philip, and then we're going to look at Philip here in uh, verse 26 down in Acts chapter 8. But we're going to look at him as kind of an example. How does he push into the life of this Ethiopian? What does it look like to push into somebody's life uh, with the love of Jesus, with the gospel? Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward, uh, toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his, its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariots to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The first thing I notice here is as we start reading here in verse 26 about Philip uh, sharing and pushing into the life of the Ethiopian is, is that God is already at work. God is already at work in the life of the Ethiopian. Um, here's this guy um, that, that is very obvious that before Philip even gets there, God has already been doing a work in this man's life. God's already been revealing himself to this Ethiopian man. What evidence do we see? What is the evidence that we see there that God is working? Well, he's reading the word of God, isn't he? He's reading the scroll of Isaiah, in fact. One of the, one of the Old Testament books of the Bible with the most prophecy, the most, some of the most famous prophecy about Jesus uh, about the coming Messiah. And so he's reading this scroll of Isaiah. And what is hard for us to maybe understand in our culture, this would not have been an easily accessible item. Um, scrolls of Isaiah were not just simply, he didn't, he didn't go to La Quinta in Jerusalem and uh, there was a scroll of Isaiah sitting on his nightstand like some kind of Gideon Bible. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't find that there. He probably had to go search for a place that probably had, had made this and, and, and had, had a copy of, of the scroll of Isaiah, and it probably was extremely expensive. Uh, in those days, uh, they, they wrote on uh, this paper-like substance called um, 
papyrus is what it was called. And it would have been made from reeds that grow along the Nile River. And, uh, and it was then rolled up on scrolls. They didn't have books bound yet. Uh, this was before the printing press. Um, and so in order to copy a, a document like the book of, an, of Isaiah, somebody would have had to hand copy it, hand copy that thing. Um, in the scroll of Isaiah, I was reading, uh, John's got us doing this Bible uh, class on uh, Tuesday mornings, and there's this cool book that talks about um, how, how the Bible's been translated and passed down over, over years. But it's actually got a little excerpt in there about the, the scroll of Isaiah. A typical scroll uh, of Isaiah, they've actually got one like in a museum somewhere. Well, they've unrolled it and measured it, and it is like 23 feet long, okay? That's how long this thing would have been altogether, probably uh, we can imagine. So this guy's holding this large scroll out, you know, and he's, he's reading it piece by piece and rolling it, uh, and, he, and he's reading the book of Isaiah. This would not have been an easy thing to come across. He had traveled a great distance and spent no small amount of money to obtain the scroll. Secondly, he just so happens to be reading in the place in Isaiah that is talking about, guess who? Guess who? Who's it talking about there in Isaiah? It's talking about Jesus. I know that's the churchy answer, but it's the right one this morning, okay? So you could say it. It's talking about Jesus. So Philip overhears this he goes near to the chariot. God tells him to. God's laid this, this man in this chariot on his heart. He goes up and he overhears him reading about Jesus. To say that God is working in this situation is a great understatement, is it not? It's a great understatement. It's like saying the sun is hot, you know, or the sun is bright. God is at work. God is at work in this man's life. So what, what can we draw from this? I think it's important as we think about sharing our faith, we need to realize one thing, God is already working in our world around us. He's already at work in people's lives. Some of you have probably experienced this as, as you have shared your faith already. You, you've, you've, you've maybe come into a relationship with a person and as you're talking with them, you realize God's at work in their lives drawing them, revealing himself to them, and God's kind of put you there to kind of complete the puzzle in their lives. You're a part of God's working in their lives. Some of you maybe can think back all the way back to when you became a believer, and you think about, man, as you were kind of in that before you came to Christ stage of your life, God began working in you. God began maybe convicting you of sin and you maybe came to this place in your life where you're just miserable with your life because you realize, man, I am a wicked person. Man, there is something wrong in me. And then somebody comes along and starts telling you about Jesus and it's like, that's it. I'm trying to do this thing all on my own and I've rejected God out of my life. And Jesus is the answer. God is already at work here. Um, so as we're trying to share our faith, look for evidence. Look for evidence in people's life that where God is working. I think that's a great, a great thing to, to kind of keep in mind as we're thinking about sharing our faith with others. So what evidences can we look for? What are some, what are some things that, just briefly, that, that we can think of that might be things that we can kind of watch for in people's lives to know if God is at work? And these aren't hard and fast rules, but 
I'm just thinking it's helpful to, for us to think about that a little bit this morning. What are some things that, that would be evidence? Well, for one, if somebody's asking for a Bible or reading a Bible, that might be something that might be some evidence that God's at work, kind of like what we see here in the Ethiopian. Um, maybe if somebody is um, asking some spiritual questions, questions about church, questions about God, uh, those might be some, something that's an evidence that God is at work in their lives. Or, you know, again, there's, there could be a thousand other questions. I was having a, a conversation um, w- with a young man this week, and, and uh, we were down work, uh, doing a work day on Wednesday. And uh, this young man, he, he, he'd, he'd told me, I was having a, a conversation with my dad the other day, and we were talking about, we were talking about the day of worship. And isn't in the Old Testament, in Genesis, doesn't it talk about that... Doesn't it talk about that like on the, se- on the last day of the week or the seventh day, God rested? And my dad was saying, that's Saturday. So why, why do we worship on Sunday? And so we got to have this great conversation about why we as Christians, as New Testament believers, choose to on Sunday worship instead of on Saturday, uh, specifically uh, as far as gathering corporately. And, and so we got to talk about how Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week and, and just what a neat thing that was, that that changed, that changed everything for us as Christians, uh, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And so we begin to meet and, and celebrate the Lord's day. Um, and, and so that, that, that was kind of a cool conversation. Th- those are questions that, that kind of should lend us to think, oh, God is at work here in somebody's life. They're asking some really good questions So God moves Philip from some great things going on in Samaria to a road seemingly in the middle of nowhere. It even says here uh, in in Acts chapter 8, it even says, this is a desert place. And, you know, again, it just marvels. I'm just marveling at, at this guy Philip in that God is really doing some cool stuff where Philip's at. Philip's in Samaria uh, people are getting saved. Uh, the gospel is moving forward. And God just takes him out of that and says, ah, you're going to go to this desert place. And I, I mean, I just imagine here he is doing great ministry in Samaria. And then all, all of a sudden God takes him all the way out to this desert place. And he's like, okay, God, what, what, what in the world? What is going on here? What is so important out here that you had to take me out of some great ministry that's going on in Samaria? But, but we just see this guy, Philip, and he's automatically, it seems, intuitively, just looking around for somebody to tell, tell about Jesus. And he goes and, 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 and God says, hey, go share the gospel with this Ethiopian man. And I think one thing that's important for us and as, we, as we look at Philip here, and I'm just kind of going through this scripture uh, this morning, but what is our response when God moves us to a new place? And, and I talk to, to you guys all the time, uh, students, even adults. Maybe your employment changes, your employment situation changes. And maybe you had a really sweet situation going with your job or, or with your school. Had some great friends. And all of a sudden, it just seems like for some really weird reasons, you're moved. You've got a different job. You're in a different working environment. You're at a different school. 
And so many times, those, those times in our lives maybe bring maybe some frustration and maybe even some hardship as we're trying to fit in or trying to figure things out. But I think the message here, at least as we look at Philip this morning, is that, you know what? Maybe we should think about in those situations, the thing that should come to our mind is that, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, God has moved me here to tell somebody about Jesus. Maybe that's why I'm here. Maybe God's pushing me out of where I was and pushing me into this place because the gospel needs to push in here somewhere. And I need to be looking for that, looking for those opportunities. So Philip looks around and the spirit of God lays on his heart, the Ethiopian in the chariot. So he goes, he goes near, he goes near and he's overhearing what's going on in the chariot. He's overhearing this guy reading the book of Isaiah. Has God laid some people on your heart? Maybe you're like me and you know what? There's times where, you know what? God, for some reason, puts somebody on my heart and puts somebody in my mind. And, and I begin to think, you know what? I, I've kind of got a burden for that person. I have a burden that that person maybe needs to hear some of God's truth. Maybe needs to hear me share the gospel and share about Jesus. So Philip doesn't delay. He runs over to the chariot. What does Philip do next? And I think this is huge. What does Philip do next as he's hearing this guy reading? He's overhearing this guy reading from the book, the scroll of Isaiah. What he doesn't do is he doesn't immediately spout off into a sermon, okay? I want you to see that. He doesn't immediately just start saying, hey, you need to hear about Jesus. Well, I know about Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And just start going on a rampage. He asks a question. That's the very first thing he does. That's the very first thing he says to this Ethiopian man. He goes, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And he just asks this question, and it's, he's, he's trying to find out who this guy is, where he's at in his life, what is God doing in his life? And he just asks a really open-ended question. Questions are, are a big thing. And, you know, uh, Pastor Jason's really helped me with this. He, he's taught me a lot about, about how to have, build relationships with people a lot. And he says, you know what? If you want to know something about somebody, if you really want somebody to know you care about them, ask them questions about themselves. Just, just ask them questions. Because people like to talk about themselves. I mean, we just do. We like to talk about ourselves. We like to tell people about who we are, what we're interested in, what's important to us. If you want to push into somebody's life, take, chance, take the time to get to know them. Take the time to ask him good questions. And that's what Philip does here. He, he asks questions. And the response of the Ethiopian man uh, as he answers uh, the question is, and I think, I think this really kind of shows us that that's what's going on here. Because the, the thing that the Ethiopian does after Philip asks him this question, he says, well, how can I understand, you know, unless somebody shares it with me? And then... The Ethiopian says he invites Philip up into his chariot, this complete stranger that's kind of seemingly probably come out of nowhere. 
he invites Philip up into his chariot to sit with him. And so now, they're sitting there in the chariot, scroll out in front of them, and they're reading the scroll together, right? And they read uh, this, this, this passage of scripture. And uh, anybody, any, anybody uh, have the little uh, reference in your Bible that tells you what that scripture reference is? Yeah, you might, probably some of you do. You've got maybe a little letter there. But it's Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8. And it's this prophecy about Jesus Christ. And it says, they read this, and the eunuch says to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Boom, right? There's the big question. Who's this talking about? It's Jesus. And so Philip is able to just start right there, it says. He just, it says, then Philip opened his mouth, and he begin, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And we don't really get to witness, you know, we don't really see what happens here. Um, we don't really get to see if Philip, or I mean, if, if the Ethiopian prays a prayer, or if he uh, just kind of has this moment of, you know, where a tear comes out of his eye, and he's like, I believe in Jesus. We don't really get to see what happens there. But we see that this man in the next passage of scripture is wanting to be baptized. And we, so, so we imagine that, man, an exchange has happened there. Something has happened there where this man has gone from just knowing about who Jesus is to putting his faith in Jesus. And it's changed him. It's changed his life. The question I thought of is, as Philip opens his mouth and begins sharing about Jesus that, that I think is, is huge for us today if somebody were to ask you, do you know enough about Jesus to give them a pretty complete explanation of who he is and, who, and what the gospel is, would you be able to explain who Jesus is to somebody who's asking and seeking? Do you know that, Christian? Do you know enough about Jesus to do that? The gospel, uh, the word of God is, is a unique book. Uh, that demands our highest respect, and especially uh, those of us who claim Christ should know, should know the word of God. I'm going to wrap up here. I'm going to move to my closing statement here. Christian, uh, I want to challenge you this morning. Are, are you willing to push into the world around you with the good news of Jesus? Will you listen? Are you willing to listen for where God is working? Are you willing to watch? Open up your eyes and ask God, God, show me where you're working in people's lives. Help me to be sensitive to that. God, lay people on my heart. Will you care enough about lost people to build relationships with them? Will you care enough to ask them questions about their life? More than just kind of delivering a message, more than just giving them information, are you willing to build relationships? And do you know enough about Jesus to give them a reasonably complete answer about who he is? I'm going to ask uh, Michelle to come. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're a non-Christian. Uh, you, you, you would say, you know what, I have not put my faith in Jesus yet. I'm kind of like this Ethiopian man. 
I don't really know who Jesus is yet. I've got a lot of questions about him. Maybe that's who you are this morning and you're here. And what I would say to you is, God's working in your life, I think. I think God's probably working in your life. I don't think it's an accident that you find yourself here this morning um, in our presence and, and hearing about the gospel, hearing about Jesus. I think God's working. And that's what I would encourage you is keep, keep asking questions. Keep seeking. Because you're looking in the right place. Jesus is the right place to be looking. Maybe you've heard that the Bible is a story and the story of Jesus is just a cleverly devised story. But you're here this morning and you know, you know what, there's something more to it than that. There's something more. There's got to be more to it than that because there's just too much evidence to the contrary. And so you come, maybe you have questions this morning, you want to come and ask some questions and we want to give you that opportunity. I want to encourage you to keep seeking. Um, maybe, just maybe, there's some of you this morning that are here and you're like the Ethiopian in that chariot. You've heard about Jesus and you're like, yeah, that's the real thing. And I'm ready this morning to embrace Jesus Christ. I'm ready to embrace him and I'm ready to come forward publicly and tell everybody that I've embraced Jesus. I've put my faith in him and he is everything I need for my life, for salvation, for forgiveness of sin and for life.